You're listening to audio from Calvary Gravenhurst in Muskoka, Ontario. For more resources or to connect with someone in the church, please visit calvarygravenhurst.com. This week's sermon is taught by pastor of Next Generations, Mark Hockley. Great singing. It was great uh, to, to be with you this morning, and I'm excited as we um, move um, into talking um, about God's Word. Um, it's a heavy topic, and um, so I just want to remind you, I guess, of what I said last time, um, that I don't preach this with any sort of delight. Um, my friends and my family are very heavy on my heart as we dive into this topic of hell. Um, and I know the same is true for many of you. I could see it on your faces um, last week um, because it's heavy. But it's also important for us to talk about the truth. And this is something that we've got to know um, the truth on because to have, um, have this wrong um, is deadly. And so we want to rightly look at God's word and see what he says. So let's pray and ask God to help us this morning. Lord, I pray that you would be here with us this morning. And we know that you say where two or three are gathered, there you are, God. And so we say thank you for coming and being with us, Lord. We pray, God, that you would help us this morning. God, would you move mightily in our midst? Would you help our, our hearts and our minds um, to rightly understand, God, your word? God, would you change our hearts and our lives? Would we live differently God, because of the truth, God, would we want to know you, God, more than anything else in all the world. God, the world is so easy um, to get distracted by. God, we can so identify uh, with the song everyone says, I just, I feel um, my heart wander. Uh, I'm prone to leave the God I love. Um, God, that's me. Um, and so God, I just pray. Lord, that we would um, focus, God, focus on you, um, focus on your word, God, and be open um, to the Holy Spirit moving in our hearts and our minds. We pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, so first little review, little recap. So last week, if you weren't with us, we're in the second part in a two-part series on considering the reality of hell. And so in this first section, um, last week, we, we basically answered three questions, and we looked at, does everyone go to heaven? Um, and we, we looked at the fact that, no, the Bible doesn't teach this. Everyone does not go to heaven. There are different eternal destinies, whether you follow God or whether you don't. Um, second, we looked at, is hell a real place? Um, and one of the places that we looked at is Matthew 25, and we remember what it taught, where it said that um, it's a place that's prepared and for the devil and his demons and the eternal destiny of those who aren't children of God. And so, yes, hell is a real place. And then third, we looked at why does hell exist? And we looked at the fact that because, it's, um, because when we re um, infinitely reject a good God, that is to love evil. Right? It's to love the darkness rather than to love the light. And so there's this eternal sin that's deserving of judgment and punishment. And then today we're going to look at part two, and we're going to look at what does the reality of hell teach us about God 
and the gospel, and then what does the reality of hell cause us to consider in ourselves? So that's where we're going this morning. So let's look at number one. What does the reality of hell teach us about God and the gospel? The first thing that we need to go before we dive too much into things, I need you to remember this, is that everything is ultimately about God. If you remember one thing from all the different hours that you've heard me yammer up here, remember this one thing, that the Bible is ultimately about God. And even when we talk about how it's only intended to point us towards God. Matthew 10, 28 says this, it says, do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Hell's not ultimately about the fire, right? It's not ultimately about the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. It's about God. And so we're going to look at a few attributes of God as they relate to hell, and we're going to see what hell can teach us about who God is. And so to kind of set that up, we have to wrestle with a few questions, don't we, as they relate to God and hell. The first one's this. Is God really sovereign over everything? Right? We would all say, yes, God is sovereign. Is God really sovereign over everything? Is God even sovereign over hell? And second, we have to look at this one. Is God really omnipresent? Omnipresent means everywhere. Is God really everywhere? Is he really in control of everything? And is he really everywhere, even when it relates to hell? That's what we must wrestle with, which essentially boils down to this question. Is God present in hell? And you say, of course God's not present in hell, right? I've been taught for a long time that to be in hell is to be removed from the presence of God and heaven is to be with God. And I think there's elements of truth in those statements, but I think we need to be a little bit more nuanced, a little bit more specific, because I want to um, get you to consider these two verses that seem to offer conflicting statements. You remember this one from last week? We looked at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. It says this, These people will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Right, So here we see, it looks to be away from the presence of the Lord. But then we get to Revelation 14, and look at what this one says. It says, And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels. And what? In the presence of the Lamb. That's talking about Jesus. So how can both of these things be true? They seem to be quite conflicting. Michael Horton says this, and I would agree with him when he writes that these verses are best reconciled in my view by recognizing that judgment consists in being excluded from the presence as the source of, um, God's presence as the source of all blessedness, but not from God's omnipresent lordship. So that's a lot of big words. What does it mean? It means that when we talk about hell, right, being away from the presence of God, we're speaking about being removed from the positive aspects of being in his presence. 
right? Because for the Christian, the presence of God is absolute goodness, right? It's absolute blessedness. It's a joy to be with God in his presence. But that's not true of everyone, is it? For those who refuse to follow God, it's an absolute terror to be in the presence of a holy and justly wrathful God. To not be in the presence of God, right, is to be removed from everything good, which means that we're left with pain and evil and suffering because everything good comes from God. And we don't have time to get into a giant discussion about this, um, but this idea that everything good comes from God, um, everything good that we see on the earth is called the common grace of God. Have you ever wondered how you had good qualities before you were a Christian? If you're really a dead and horrible sinner, like the Bible says that you are apart from God, that's the common grace of God in you. It's the common grace of God in the world. It's why your neighbor's so kind, even though they don't know Christ. And yet at the end of the age, at the end of time, when the sheep and the goats are separated, right, the common grace of God's going to be removed, right? And those people that looked like they were such nice people, all that goodness is going to melt away and we're going to recognize that everything good in humanity ultimately came from God. And so in hell, what we're going to find is the true evil of humanity and we're going to understand why it needs to be punished. And God will be there as judge, right? His lordship and sovereignty know no bounds. He's in control of everything, even hell. So let's wrap this one up. Is God present in hell? I think it's basically what we've been talking about, the best way to reconcile these verses and stay consistent with the teaching and the understanding of the attributes of God is to understand that humanity and the devil and his angels, when they're removed from the goodness of God, right? When they're being um, taken away from the presence of God, that that's gonna be horrible. But God's ultimately in control, right? He's ultimately omnipresent, right? Meaning everywhere, So I think he's going to be present in hell as judge. But rather than have his face turned towards people in love, right, his face is going to be turned against them in evil. And there's nothing going to be worse, nothing more painful than to have the face of God turned against you. And so we learn more about the sovereignty of God, right, in the omnipresence of God, in the wrath of God, in the love of God, as we consider this topic of hell. The next, let's look at the holiness of God as it relates to hell. First Samuel 2, 2 says this. It says, there is none holy like the Lord, for there is none like you. There is no rock like our God. The idea of holiness conveys two ideas. The first that it conveys is absolute perfection, no sin. I mean, the second that it com- conveys is to be completely set apart, right? To be completely unlike anyone or anything else. And that's what we're seeing here in this verse, right? He's saying, there's none like the Lord. There's none besides you. You're completely different than anyone else. You're set apart. And so we see in the Bible that God is holy. But here's a big question. What happens when sin collides with the holiness of God? What do you do with that? There are two answers that the Bible gives us to this question. The first one, when sin collides with the holiness of God, is that sin is covered by the, uh, it's met with the patient um, grace, love demonstrated through the blood of Jesus. It's met with that. The second option is that it's met with just wrath and it's met with punishment. 
Do you remember that spiel that I give you guys over and over again? You probably get sick of hearing it about conflict and what happens when someone sins against you, right? There's two options when someone sins against you and why you shouldn't take revenge, why you shouldn't treat them um, with anger or contempt. Why? Because there's two things. Either that sin against you is covered by the blood of Jesus, right? If they're currently a Christian or one day God saves them, then their sin, all the awful things they've done, even the awful thing they've done to you, is covered by the blood of Jesus. Just like all the awful things you've done to other people are covered by the blood of Jesus. Or option number two is sin is dealt with justly by the ruling of God who is a just judge. And that sin is dealt with ultimately in hell. And so these are the two outcomes of sin which is done against a holy God, covered by the blood of Jesus or dealt with justly in hell. And so what does hell's existence teach us about the holiness of God? If you remember last week, we looked at why hell exists, right? It ultimately exists because every sin against God, is telling God that we don't want him on the throne of our lives. We want to be in charge. We reject the goodness of God and instead choose to love evil. And this is eternal rebellion that demands eternal punishment. And as we consider how awful it is for hell to exist, right, we're simultaneously comforted by the fact that hell's existence means that God is absolutely holy. He's absolutely perfect. He's absolutely set apart. And this kind of creates this weird paradox in you, doesn't it? Inside of you that I want, but I want, what I want you to see is that this is ultimately a good thing. Because if God's not absolutely perfect, when Jesus goes to take the punishment for our sins, he wouldn't qualify, right? If he sinned in any way, he would have his own eternal debt to pay, And since the debt is eternal, that means that he can't be qualified to take on anybody else's debt because his debt can already not get bigger. It's only in his perfection that he was qualified to take on our debt, to take on our sin, to die in our place. And this is the best news for us that we need desperately, don't we? Because we all sin. We're all a mess. And this is what undergirds the good news of the gospel. So we learn more of the holiness of God through hell. Next, this transitions nicely into the justice of God. Psalm 89, 14 says this. It says, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. God is a God of justice. And as we consider God being a God of justice, this is the question that many of us wrestle with. And it's okay to wrestle with this, right? We wrestle with how could a loving and just God then send people to hell? What an awful thing. And it is an awful thing to consider. But I would kindly put the question back to you this way. How could God be just or loving if he did not send people to hell? Right? One of the biggest objections that I hear from non-Christians as they talk to me, my friends, um, big conversations about this in university, is why doesn't God deal with evil now? Right? We all have an innate understanding that evil is inside of us. We know that evil must be punished. Right? When you watch Lord of the Rings, what are you rooting for in your heart as you watch? Right? Are you rooting for the orcs? Are you rooting for Sauron? No. 
You're not, right? You want to see the armies of evil be completely destroyed. We want to see Sauron destroyed. We want to see evil destroyed because we have an innate understanding of justice. And so God is going to deal with evil through the existence of hell in his time. 2 Peter 3, 9 through 10 says this. It says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish. Right? He's not just talking about die here on earth. He's saying, not wishing that any should go to hell, but that all you should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. It's out of the goodness in the kindness of God, that he doesn't destroy evil right now. You say, what? You have to remember, who's evil? All of us are evil. The devil and his demons, they're evil. Look what Matthew 7, 11 says. This is Jesus talking. Look at the analogy, and look who's the undergirding of the analogy. He says, if you then, who are evil, talking to humans know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who's in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So he's talking about the goodness of God. He's saying, look, if you are evil, if you humans are evil, and you know how to give good gifts to people, how much more is God who is good going to give good things to those who ask him? It says that we are evil, right? So it's out of the goodness and the kindness of God that he doesn't destroy evil right now. Because if we want God to destroy evil right now, then everyone who's not covered by the blood of Jesus, who's not following God, is going to be destroyed. And we don't want that. Right? Those friends, those family, those co-workers, the people that we care about desperately, who have been heavy on your hearts this week as we've been considering the reality of hell, they would be destroyed like this if God dealt with evil in this moment. And so I find myself incredibly grateful that God shows patience in dealing with evil. But we haven't completely answered the question yet, have we? We know that God's going to deal with evil. He deals with evil through hell. And it shows his goodness, actually, that he doesn't deal with evil right now, but he's slow, not wanting anyone to perish. But it brings us back to this question, right? How can a loving and just God send people to hell and so again, I would refer you to the thing on the screen. How could God be just or loving if he did not send people to hell? Basically, I can put it to you this way. Would you prefer that God is okay with evil? Would you prefer that genocide and rape and murder didn't really bother God that much? Or maybe you would like him to bother him, but not to the point where he deals with it once and for all? No, of course not. We want justice for those awful, evil things, right? We look around our world and it pains us to see the injustice in the world, to see all the pain and all the suffering. It's right and good for us to look around the world and want justice, right? We have that sense of justice inside of us because we were made in the image of God. And one of the beautiful common graces of God is that I think especially the younger generation has a wonderful desire for justice. 
And so if we're not talking about that evil, right, if we ultimately want that, that really bad evil, to be punished, then what are we talking about? Are we talking about degrees of evil? But how do you rightly discern degrees of evil? Right, so we agree that genocide and rape and murder deserve hell, but what do we do with the greed that causes people all around the world to starve? What do we do with the selfishness that causes women to be objectified and used? Do you want me to move farther, air quotes for those on the podcast, down the chain of humans, of evil and sin? What do we do when pride destroys people's families? Or the lust of the heart causes men and women to cheat on their spouses in their mind? Do you want to just keep going until it hits you? My point's this, right? We can't deal in degrees of evil. All degrees of evil are what? They're evil. There's different levels of consequences in the temporal earth, right, that cause us to think about them differently. But ultimately, all sin is rebellion against God and necessitates separation from God, from the good presence of God, and it's just and loving for God to deal with evil eternally. He wouldn't be good if if he only dealt with it for part of the time. Would he be good? He must be good only if he deals with it eternally. And so even if it's hard, right, how God deals with evil, it's right and good. All evil deserves to be punished, right? And God would not be just or loving if he did not rightfully and eternally deal with evil. But then we end up on the flip side of this, don't we? Right, and maybe you've heard this from family or friends or wrestle with this yourself. You say, but then doesn't it seem right? It doesn't seem right that murderers go to heaven. Why would God allow that, right? And to this I say, amen, yes, This is the good news of the gospel, right? That it doesn't make sense that bad people would go to heaven. Because guess what? Who are we again? We're bad people. So amen. Praise God, right? If you look in Matthew 5, 21 and 22, it says this. You have heard it said that those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Do you see how Jesus views things here? He puts anger and murder on the same level. Again, not in terms of earthly consequences, right? But eternally, in the eyes of of God. None of us deserve to be in heaven. And that's the good news of the gospel, isn't it? Right? So we're all murderers. We're all deserving to have punishment. None of us should escape punishment. We're all wicked, evil sinners. I'm a wicked, evil sinner. And in ourselves, we deserve one thing and one thing only. I deserve hell. Because we've all committed that rebellion against God that we've been talking about, right? The reality of hell is that we should be so incredibly grateful for the cross and for the empty grave. It's what should cause communion to not just be another thing that we do. Instead, it should be this emotional, repentant, grateful event where we remember that we deserve to be in hell, right? With fire and darkness and pain and weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's what I deserve. That's what you deserved. And yet Jesus loved us so much 
that he died in our place. So that would not be our eternal destiny if we would follow him. The gospel means infinitely more when you recognize you and yourself that you are evil and that you deserve to die that second death. When we believe we're inherently good, we don't grasp what God saved us from. We don't, we don't care what he saved us from because we think we're good. But are we good? Look around the world at what humans do to each other. Is humanity good? But when we come to grips with our own evil and that Jesus pulled us off the path towards hell that causes thankfulness, right? To well up in our souls, should it not? We want to be thankful, thankful people. Hell teaches us much about who God is. We learn of his sovereignty. We learn of his omnipresence. We learn of his holiness. We learn of his justice. We learn of his love. And it causes us to be so, so, so grateful for the good news of the gospel. Let's move to part two now. What does the reality of hell cause us to consider in ourselves? What does it cause us to consider in ourselves? We're going to break it into two parts and we're going to look at this one first. What does the reality of hell cause in our hearts? This is the first thing that we must wrestle with. Look at Philippians chapter 3, verses 18 through 19. It says this, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, hell. Their God is their belly, and their glory is their shame with minds set on earthly things. The Apostle Paul was one tough dude. And that look at what he responds to, right? He's crying over the people who don't know Christ, whose end is destruction, whose end is hell. If you think he's a little wimp, remember this one from 2 Corinthians 11? Look at what this says. This is Paul writing about what he's gone through. He says, five times at the hands of the Jews, the 40 lashes less one. That means five times he was tortured to the point of death for his faith. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, from danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold, and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. The Apostle Paul was one tough dude, and yet look at his heart. That he's in tears for those who don't know the truth, for those who don't know Jesus, whose eternal destiny is going to be hell. That's what brings him to tears. Let me ask you this. You already know it's coming. Do you ever find yourself in tears for those who don't know the truth? For those who don't know Christ? For those who don't know Jesus? Paul was fearless. Go look at Acts. Remember reading Acts? Remember the amount of times that Paul preaches in a city, tells them about Jesus. The whole city gets so angry at them that he, they try to kill him. 
Some of them even leave the city and follow him around and try to kill him. And we have, what does he do? He keeps preaching. Because it's important that people would know the truth about eternity. Read about all the times he's tortured for his faith. How many of you have been tortured for your faith? How many of you have gone to jail for your faith? How many of you have had thousands of people trying to kill you because of your love for Jesus? I don't know that any of us qualify. I don't qualify, not even close. And if any of you qualify, please come up and talk to me after. I would love to hear your story. Yet the manliest man was in tears because people don't know Jesus in their eternal destiny was hell. Is this your heart? Let's look at this one in Romans 9, 1 through 3. Paul also wrote this. And what Paul wrote in Philippians is nothing to compare to what he writes in Romans. Look at what Romans 9 says. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, for my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Do you see what he says here in these verses? He says, he says, I have great sorrow and I have unceasing anguish in my heart. Why? Because he knows that many of his people are on the path towards hell. And then look what he says in verse three. Let's read it again. For I could wish that my, I myself were cut, accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. The word accursed is translated from the Greek word anathema. Anathema means to devote to destruction in eternal hell. Do you see what he's writing here? He says, I wish that I could go to hell. I wish that I could be cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, for the sake of people that I love, and for the sake of people I don't even know, so that they could be with God. Is that not mind-boggling to you? Does that not tear your soul apart? Now you see here, he knows it's not part of God's created order. That's why he says, I wish. But can you imagine having a heart that loves people that much? I'll be perfectly honest with you and say, I'm not there. But I want to be. I want to be there. Maybe you are and you can help me. But I don't know about you, but I want to love people like that. Do you love people like that? That's where I want to be. God help me. What does the reality of hell cause us to change in our lives? That's the other thing we want to look at. First one, let's look at Matthew 5, 22. We've already read this verse earlier, haven't we? But we're going to look at it now through the application. It says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. This is a frightening statement, isn't it? This is a reminder of how seriously God thinks about conflict within his children and for us insulting those who were made in his image. 
Whoever finds himself calls other people a fool may be guilty of hell. That's what it says. That's crazy. If you called, this is the questions that the Holy Spirit was asking me. Have you called someone a fool lately or thought it in your head? Have you been angry with someone? Maybe a spouse or one of your kids? Maybe an elder or a pastor or someone in the church? Maybe you got into an argument with someone in an online forum or used some scathing words on Instagram. God takes anger, God takes conflict, God takes slander incredibly seriously because they destroy the unity of his church and they tear down those who were created in his image that he loves. And so if God takes these things so seriously, if he takes slander, if he takes conflict, if he takes anger so seriously, that he would remind us that their deserved punishment is hell. Brothers and sisters, would we not do the same? Would we not do the same? I think this is an area in our church that we need to grow in. If you read in Revelation 2, God writes to the churches and he writes about the great things that they've done. And we have a great church here. We have many great things. You guys know, we've talked about that. But I think this is something that God might write that's against us. Remember in that passage what he writes? He writes, and I have this against you. I think this might be one of the things that he writes against us. That too often there is conflict in our body. It's an area that we can grow in, that God takes to this incredibly, incredibly seriously. The thing that takes by far the most of the elders' time is conflict. And so let's grow in this area, that we can use that time, we can use that resources as all of us towards other things. There's a whole community out there that desperately needs to know God. Let's conflict less with each other and look more towards bringing the good news of the gospel to our community. Let's grow in this area. The other one we'll look at is Jesus. But Jesus, didn't we? Francis Chan says this. He says, and how about Matthew 7? Probably the scariest passage on hell in the entire Bible. The most horrific word in this passage isn't hell. It isn't fire, furnace, everlasting, gloom, darkness, words, or torment. In fact, none of these words occur in this passage. The most frightening word is many. Let's read the passage. It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Not everyone who knows to call God Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not enough to just believe in God. It's not enough just to show up at church. James 2.19 reminds us that even the demons believe in God and the demons even tremble before God. Do we always tremble before God? 
And yet, what do they not do? They don't do the will of your Father in heaven. Their belief in God's existence hasn't translated into a change in their heart, which was demonstrated by a wholesale change in their life. What does Jesus say here? He says, I never knew you. It's not about you knowing about God. It's about you being a child of God. It's about you being known by God. Your Easter services and tithes at church and Bible studies and regular church services and potlucks and youth events and seniors events and singing on the worship team, when you bring those things before God, what's Jesus going to say about all those things? Were they done for the right reasons? What evidence do you have that Jesus knows you, brothers and sisters? I'm asking you this because I love you. I'm asking you this because there's not a passage that keeps me up more at night than this one as a pastor. Because many, those are the church people, the many that thought they were in the church, that thought they were living for God, thought they would waltz right into heaven based on the things that they did for God. And instead, Jesus says, I never knew you. There's not a more horrible end to life, and I don't want this to be any of your ends. I want you to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God knows you. And if you're not sure, I would encourage you, read the book of 1 John. It's written that you would know if you are a Christian. And so what should the reality of hell cause us to change in our lives? It should cause us to change everything. We'll close with this. Uh, One of my favorite movies is Gladiator. Many of you guys love Gladiator. I know you do. Uh, It's a good movie. And in the opening scene of the movie, as the Roman army is getting ready for battle, um, the commander, Maximus, um, he's the commander of the army, and he makes a profound statement that is more Christian than the writers would ever realize. He looks his men in his eye before battle, and he says, Men, what we do in this life, it echoes in eternity. And this is so, so true. What we do in this life, it echoes in eternity. For those of you who are not Christians in this room today, what you do with God in this life echoes in eternity. It determines your eternal destiny. And for the Christian, this also rings true. Will you choose to live for God in this life? Will God's impact through you echo into eternity, person after person after person? What will you do with the time and the money and the talents that he's given with you? Don't waste them. What we do in this life in the power of the Holy Spirit will echo into eternity. Hell is real, but God is good. And he sent his son, Jesus, to take punishment for your sin so that you could be with him forever instead of being punished eternally in hell. God doesn't desire that that be your eternal destiny. That's why he's slow in coming. Remember that verse. You need to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Do you really believe he's God? And believe in your heart that he raised him from the dead. Make him king of your life. Say, God, I believe in you. I need you more than anything. 
Jesus is inviting you to follow him. And this is the good news of the gospel, right? That we were dead in our sins, that we can't do anything on our own to save us. We know what we deserve to get. And God says, you know what? Even though you deserve to go to hell, I love you enough that I'll die for you. I'll 